Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Twice Freed by Patricia Sanjan with permission of Christian Focus Publications, and we are on Chapter 6. Never would Onesimus forget his first sight of Ephesus, the supreme metropolis of Asia, as they rounded a bend in the hills and saw the city spread out before them, its marble pillars and temples dazzling in the moon morning sunlight and the waters of the harbor sparkling and the sea beyond the canal of peacock blue. The encircling heights of Mount Carassus sloped down to the Aegean and the city lay as though cradled to the southwest in a green protecting arm. Even the most hardened pilgrims paused and held their breath and worshipped, for here was beauty incarnate, the fitting home and shrine of the fair goddess whose temple even now lay in full view of the low-lying ground north of the city one of the seven great wonders of the world. It was built facing the harbor so that every tired soldier whose ship entered the canal would lift up his eyes and view it from afar and be blessed and strengthened by the bounty of the goddess. Onesimus stood as though rooted to the spot until the older slave dug him sharply in the ribs with his riding whip. Philemon and Archippus were already pushing ahead, expecting their slaves to follow close behind him and it was not easy to keep together in the exciting, excited, sweating throng. The boy had never in his life so many, seen so many people and said so, and his fellow slave laughed. There are yet five days to the Art- Artemisia, he said. It will be a lot worse yet. Thank the gods you came early. Polemon had already arra- arranged for a comfortable apartment for his merchant friend and sent his slaves to prepare it. It was a relief to turn in from the blazing streets to the cool, shaded atrium and to find a bath and bed and, and meal ready and, and stables for the horses. Onesimus was sent off immediately to care for the weary beast, and his work done, he lingered long at the gate, gazing at the exquisite temple and the great theater on the hill that dominated the city. There were 24,000 seats in that theater, and no doubt he would go in attendance with Archippus and see the Panalomian games. He was tempted to run across the harbor street and peep at the agora, or the marketplace that lay beyond, but he was recalled by an angry voice. Whatever are you doing, idle slave? You could have stabled a legion of, legion of horses by this time. Our masters have bathed and robed and are about to eat, and you should be in attendance on them. Philemon and Archippus were both hungry and very tired, and they had slept badly in the inns for three nights past, and the heat of the low-lying, sheltered city was stifling. They ate well and said little, and when they finished, Philemon pointed at the remains of the meal. My son and I will retire to rest, he said to the slaves. Eat of what is left and prepare another bath and attend to our traveling clothes and get ready for the evening meal. When we have slept and the day is a little cooler, we will proceed to the temple on foot, and you shall wait on us. I hear that the temple is a sanctuary for murderers and thieves and pickpockets, and you will need to guard our persons most diligently. We will eat on our return. The older slave, whose name was Hermas, went off to stop for their supper, and Onesimus ate hastily and worked hard, for there was much to do, and he had already offended by staying so long in the stables. He, too, was worn out from the early start in the excitement and the heat and could hardly keep his eyes open. He glanced at Archippus, snoring at his luxurious apartment, and once again hate surged up in his heart. One day he would harm this boy, defeat him, spoil his life, but the time was not yet. He must be patient, always patient. Tonight he would see the the fair goddess and pray for blessing and success. 
It was late afternoon when the two awoke and bathed and dressed with great care for their visit to the temple, which lay nearly a mile from the city. It was cooler now, and they were grateful for it, for the crowds were denser than ever. Tonight the great goddess would be unveiled to the worshipping throng, and her devotees and priests were doing their best to work the crowd into a frenzy. All along the street, between the fluted marble pillars, were booths filled with strange silvery images, some very large, some small enough to be worn as charms, and between them sat the writers of the famous Ephesian letters, scrolls of words which none could understand, but which were believed to be the most powerful spells and charms. To carry one one in your bosom was to carry a talisman against evil and a guarantee of success. Everyone in Ephesus knew the story of the Greek wrestler of the Olympic Games who threw every opponent until it was discovered he was wearing an Ephesian letter tied to his ankle. And when that was removed, he became as weak as any other man. Yet there was strange restlessness in the air and the sense of battle. Why did the silversmiths advertise their goods so frantically and the writers of magic so entreat people to buy, affirming over and over the sovereignty of Artemis? Was her sovereignty threatened? Once or twice they overheard quiet scraps of of conversation in the streets. It will not be as last year. The goddess is no longer supreme. Have men been healed by the name of Artemis? There is almost as many gathering at the school of Tyrannus. There are sure to be riots, Jews, Asians. They turned they turned them out of the synagogue two years ago. Onesimus pricked up his ears. It sounded interesting. A riot in this place would be wonderful. Why, what would be that they would riot about? And why were these men gathering in a school? He glanced at Philemon, but his master's face was somber and thoughtful. Not far from the temple, he stopped at the shop of Demetrius the largest, most fashionable silversmith, and examined the beauty models of sale. He bought an expensive image the size of his fist and a tiny charm for the silver silver chain. For your mother and Pascasia, he said to his son, they will like it. He put them carefully into his wallet and moved on to the next booth where a magician sat, surrounded by books of magic, writing busily. Philemon hesitated, watched him for a moment, and then bought two of the finest letters. I shall need them tomorrow, said he said to Archippus. I have to see Master Polemon's friend, the wool merchant, down at the harbor about joining the guild. It will greatly increase our fortunes if I am accepted. Demetrius's sh- shop was close to the temple and with a little close to the temple, and with a little shiver shiver of fear and hope and wonder, Onesimus followed his master into the precincts. He was to wait with Irmus near the door, while Philemon and Archippus pushed their way forward towards the altar and the inner shrine. But even at the back, Onesimus could see enough to thrill him. It was nearly sunset, and here, indeed, was perfect beauty. The evening light streamed down between the hundred and twenty-seven pillars of the colonnade so that the rich reds and golds and blues shone with unearthly brightness, each pillar the gift of a king. But the center of the temple was roofed with a cedar, Dimly lighted by lamps, and the air was heavy with incense and the smell of sweating humanity. At first, Onesimus only looked at the pillars and the glowing colors at the great, <clears throat> at the great staircase cut from the one gigantic vine of Cypress. <clears throat> Excuse me. At the famous old altar and the draped curtains and the beauty of the last light, 
but the light was fading now, and he began to be aware of what was happening in the dark. He looked at the faces of the men who lounged near the near him at the entrance of the temple, and he felt afraid, for they were evil, sin-seared faces, the faces of criminals, murderers, clinging to their sanctuary. He edged further into the darkness to be nearer to the worshippers, and then he felt still more afraid. Something was happening he could not understand. The quiet mutterings had grown to a kind of hysteria screaming, and the whole crowd was becoming frenzied. The curtain was being drawn up, inch by inch, and in another moment her glory would shine on him, and he would forget the cutthroats and the rogues and the sickening smell. Cool beauty and light would flow to him, and it would be a spring in his soul. <clears throat> and then, as the curtain lifted further, the insane, insane shrieking grew louder, and, and he saw her over the heads of the swirling multitude, a hideous, squat idol, a repulsive character of a woman carved from an old black wood, ending in a rough stump, nubbed and holding in her hands a club and a trident. An eerie light shone down on her, which made the darkness around him seem dark, deeper, and suddenly he was aware of evil things happening under the cover of darkness. The incense-laden air was thick with evil, and a hand took hold of him, but he screamed and broke loose and fought his way out into the open air. Sick and faint, he made for the strip of marshland that lay between the temple and the sea, and flinging himself down, pressed his forehead to the cool grass. Light still lingered in the western sky above the harbor, a rosy light reflected in the water. Yes, there was still beauty in the world, but it was as far removed from the goddess as light from darkness, as life from death. He felt more afraid than he had ever felt before, and he thought of the rock tombs that he had passed along the highway and shaped like doorways. Was this death? To pass through those doors into the stifling darkness, to draw near to her? <clears throat> Yet surely his father's gods had not been like that. One day he would go to Greece and climb the flowering slopes of Barnesus and seek for his father's gods. He dared not stay long in the marsh, for he had been ordered to wait by the door of the temple to escort his master home. Aramis was standing there when he had left and awed by the worship, but not greatly moved, for he was of the Phrygian peasant stock and as solid as his own Tarsus mountains. Onesimus stood as far as he, away as he dared, and he shivered, for the twilight was cool and fresh after the stifling atmosphere of the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. And the worship was only just beginning. The crowd would sway and shriek and chant till dawn, and many would fall down in a swoon, and some would die. It might be hours before Philemon and Archippus appeared, but they did not have to wait long. The sickly moon was just visible over the crest of Mount Ranon, where Philemon pushed his way out, half carrying his son, who had fainted. He, revived in, he was revived in the cold air, but his face was chalky white, and there was a haunted look in his eyes. Home, said Philemon briefly. They walked back to the apartment in silence, and Archippus went straight to his bed. But Philemon ordered wine, dismissed his slaves, and stayed drinking far into the night. Twice Onesimus woke and lay with his pallet in the straw, listening to his master's footsteps pacing up and down, up and down, on the paved atrium. At dawn he was still pacing to and fro under the paling stars. At breakfast Archippus had recovered and was eager to see the lights, but Philemon was heavy-eyed and moody. He drank his wine in silence and then gave orders for the day. Hermas, order a litter 
and I and my son will drive to the harbor now and discuss my business, while Onesimus sets the house in order. We shall return before noon, and Onesimus will accompany us on foot to the school of Tanarus. Why, father, said Archippus, listen to a discourse by a man named Paul Tarsus, answered his father shortly. He holds forth daily, as soon as the scholars leave for their midday meal, and goes on till the ninth hour when they return. I hear that the school is crowded all through the siesta hour. They say he has many disciples. Onesimus left alone, set the house in order, fed the horses, laid out clean clothes for his master, and prepared the light midday meal, and then sat down in the doorway to watch the throngs of people walking up and down the harbor street between the fluted marble pillars. Companies of gay ladies went up to their ladies' baths and magnificent young gladiators on their way to the gymnasium. Shoppers bound for the agora, jostling against the sweltering Egyptian sailors strolling back to their ships. At one point, the people came, made way for a proud Roman governor who was carried up to the town hall in a handsome litter with magistrates and the city clerk riding behind him in procession. Onesimus could have stayed there all day watching, but his fun was short-lived, for Philemon and Archippus returned in a surprisingly short time. They set out together for the school of Tyrannus. The school lay halfway up the hill, and Onesimus longed for to linger and look. There was so much to see, the colorful agora, the world-famous library, buildings, monuments whose strength and beauty would defy time and whose immortal carvings would still amaze the world after 2,000 years. But there was no time to stand and stare that morning, for Philemon and Archippus walked fast. There were many going the same way, and Onesimus had difficulty in keeping in sight. The going was the most more difficult on account of the merry little scholars just out of school, for they were all pushing in the opposite direction. They had arrived, for the crowd had turned into a side street and were streaming towards the door of a large hall, the school of the master of Tyrannus. It was a big crowd, but it was different from any other crowd Onesimus had ever met, for no one pushed or jostled or fought for the front seats. The people entered with grave dignity, making way for the weak or the old, or a sense of quiet expectancy hung over the room. Onesimus looked round in amazement from his, sla- from his slave's position at the door and rubbed his eyes to make sure he was not dreaming, and then looked again. Half of the congregation were Jews, and yet there was no middle wall or partition down the center of the hall. They all sat together in apparent harmony, Jew, Gentile, man, Men, women, black, white, Roman, Greek, Macedonian, rich, poor, slave, free. A deep silence now brooded over the room, and many appeared to be worshipping. Then a man climbed onto the master's dais, and every eye was turned upon him as he began to speak. He was a small, insignificant-looking Jew with a strange scar on his face and burning eyes that seemed to be looking far beyond the rapt multitude of his feet. What had he seen, wondered Onesimus with a little shiver, and what had he got to say? And anyway, what were they doing in this stifling hall, listening to this strange little Jew, when they might have been up at the theater stage watching the gladiators? Grace and peace, cried Paul, beckoning to a couple of slaves who stood hesitating at the door. Jesus Christ had made peace by the blood of his cross. You that are near and you that are far, Christ is our peace. He has broken down the middle wall of partition, and now there is no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, bond or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, it's the same name, challenging him at every turn. 
The boy at the door hung his head, for the little man on the terrace seemed now to be looking straight at him. Peace through the blood of his cross. He is our peace. Jesus Christ suffering, submitting, accepting, and forgiving. But Onesimus did not want peace at that price. He wanted to rise and rebel, to live as he pleased, to fight for his freedom, to work out his revenge. He slipped behind a pillar, sat down, and blocked his ears. Tomorrow we'll be reading chapter 7. I love you, and I'm praying for you, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.